Okay, well, we started last week looking at the character of God in a new series, and we dealt with uh, God's immutability, that means he doesn't change, and we dealt with his etern eternality, that he's eternal, he has no beginning and no end. Um, so we're moving on today, and as you can see on the slide, we're looking at his righteousness, his justice, and his wrath. So before we start, let's pray. Father, I'm very mindful that uh, how can I, as a mere human, explain about the infinite God? Lord, I, I'm mindful of the responsibility. I'm mindful of the fact that I will inevitably fail because you are infinite. But Father, I pray for your anointing, for your Holy Spirit to help me to explain the unexplainable. Thank you that in your word you give us much that we can see. And it is so encouraging. It's so wonderful. And would your Holy Spirit also give us the, the ears to hear, the minds to comprehend, and the hearts to respond in worship, love, and praise. Lord, would you lead this time, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I think what we saw last time, hopefully, will thrill you and excite you, because it's so wonderful that God doesn't change. It's so wonderful. He is always there. I also made the point, and I'll make it again, that all of God's attributes are shared by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in full measure. They are all God. And all of God's attributes must be held in balance together. If we overemphasize one at the expense of the others, we'll go wrong. So let's keep an even keel as we, as we look at these. So today I want to start with God's righteousness, although I'm going to merge that with justice as well. Um, and the, God's righteousness is really the fact that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Let me say that again. God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. The Collins Dictionary, I've got the, the big version of it that my daughter gave me some years ago, it defines righteous as characterised by, proceeding from, or in accordance with accepted standards of morality, justice, or uprightness. If you missed that the first time, uh, it's uh, righteous is characterised by proceeding from or in accordance with accepted standards of morality, justice, or uprightness. The slight snag with that is that, well, what's accepted? So that's man's perspective, but God takes it to a much higher level because God is absolutely righteous. So everything that God thinks, plans, or does is fully pure and holy and there's no aspect of his character that is tainted in any way. And as with all of God's attributes, he is infinite. And that means here that God's righteousness is infinite. There's no end to it. Now, we are fallen human beings with a sin nature. And I think that's difficult for us to get our heads around the fact that God is so infinitely righteous. He is always right and proper and godly and pure. 
So often our motives and our thoughts are not very righteous. But God is always righteous. And I'm going to consider this alongside God's justice, because in both Hebrew and Greek, there's one word group behind these two facets of God's character. So I'm putting them together, really. Uh, they're linked together. If God is righteous, then he must be just. And because his justice will reflect his righteousness. So let's take a look at some scriptures. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. We, we saw this verse last week talking about uh, God's immutability because it says um, Moses speaks of God saying he is the rock. He doesn't change. The rock is the most stable base upon which to build. Uh, but let's go on. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. And here we see both righteousness and justice mentioned in the same verse as Moses extols God's beautiful character. And note how all his ways are justice. He is without injustice. He is righteous and upright. And that's always the case. And then we could see what God says about himself. In Isaiah 45 and 19b, he says, I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. And then Abraham recognized this quality of God when he was negotiating with God about the fate of Sodom in, in Genesis 18, verse 25. And that was in the context of God wanting to judge the wicked nation of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And God will, of course, do right, because he is the judge of all the earth. And then we have Psalm 19, uh, verse 25, where the psalmist says, the statutes of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then again in Psalm 89 verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. And isn't that lovely? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. That means that as God rules the universe, the very, the very foundation of all that he does is righteous and just. Such, there are such beautiful attributes of our amazing God, and such a reassurance for us as humans that whatever God does as he sovereignly rules this universe, it will be righteous and just. But I guess the obvious question to ask is, well, what is right? We tend to define what is right according to compliance with a good standard or a good law. But God is above all law because he can't be limited by something above him because there is nothing above him. And God is inherently and eternally perfect. God's righteousness is seen in that he always does that which is right. Uh, so we need to define what that is. And I, I think we're almost caught in a circular argument here 
and I don't like sort of being caution a circular argument, but I don't think there's a, um, a way around it because that which is right is that which conforms to God's moral character. And because God is the final standard of righteousness and what is right, there can be no viable standard outside of God by which we measure righteousness. Uh, or indeed measure what is uh, just or what is what is right. He is and he always must be the definition of these things. And being the infinite measure of what is right, that which God says is right because he says it. God is infinitely righteous because his character demands it. He is the final standard. Our society today shies away from definitive statements of what is right or wrong. We, we like to say we're tolerant, although the meaning of the word tolerant seems to have changed. Um, and the outcome of that is that the morality in our culture and our society is all at sea. We don't, people don't really know what's right and wrong anymore. As fallen human beings, we like to decide uh, what we want to do, how we want to live. And we don't like being told that we're wrong. And the situation uh, here is the result of rebellion against God through the fall. Of course, willingly encouraged by Satan and all of his horse. But as God's creatures, we have no right to question his righteousness or to say that he is unrighteous or unjust. And Paul picks that up in Romans 9 and verse 20. But indeed... O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me thus? Does not the potter have the power over the clay, from the same lump to make one vessel for honour, and another for dishonour? So what we might think of as being right really has no bearing on the matter. Our measurement of what is right must be based on God's word so that our standards align with his. And consequently, our worldview must be constantly set against what God has revealed in the Bible as being right. And if there's conflict, guess what? It's we who must change because God doesn't change and he will always be right. And yet without any trace of pride. I think Job gives us a good example of this. He struggled to come to terms with all the bad things that came his way. And in Job 40, verse 2, God says, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? It's a really fantastic chapter. It's worth reading the whole thing, but you just see the glory of God's amazing power and sovereignty and and his rightness and his justice. And what we see here is that God's ways are right and they are just. And really no one can honestly and genuinely challenge that because we're fallen. 
But the, fa the fact that God is righteous is a huge blessing for us because it's so reassuring that he does always do what is right. He can't do otherwise, despite what our fallen minds might be tempted to think sometimes. God is morally pure with no impurity, no imperfection. So his motives and his plans are always a reflection of his character and always good. God has never made a mistake in all of eternity past. He's never slipped from perfection for even a moment throughout eternity, and he never will. Think for a moment how glorious that is, and because he, God is so completely trustworthy because he's righteous. Nothing that he does or plans to do will arise from selfish motives. And wouldn't that be a happier place if we did that as well? And the glorious thing is that God has the power to be righteous. We all fail in it because we're, we're sinful, but God never fails. And how we need to trust the truth of this in our daily lives, that he's always righteous and he has the power to do it as well. When the Queen of Sheba visited Solomon, she made the following comment in 1 Kings 10, 19, 10 verse 9. She said, blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. And the Queen of Sheba recognized the role of Israel's king was to do justice and righteousness. And I think that's, that's probably a glimpse of the time when Jesus will come to reign on earth in the millennium and he will reign with justice and righteousness. Uh, we see that in Isaiah 11, three to five. Speaking of that time, it says, his delight is in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Jesus will reign with righteousness and with total justice. No wonder it will be called the kingdom of God when he does so. Our world leaders make so many mistakes as they try to lead and rule in the countries where they have the authority to do so. Not so with Jesus. He will never make any mistakes as he rules the world from Jerusalem with righteousness and with justice. I think it's probably beyond our current comprehension, but it'll be wonderful. And the good news is that as believers, we'll be there to see it. God has the power and the authority to change this world that we know so that his righteousness and his justice will, will be clearly seen by all. One of the facets of justice is that the wrongs that occur in this life are put right. We have human judges who deal with criminals and we all instinctively feel that the Hitlers and the Stalins of this world should receive what we perceive to be the justice that's due to them. And I think that's a God-given instinct it, it, but it should alert us to the fact that each one of us 
face uh, potentially faces the final judgment that is coming on humanity. There are many instances now when justice is not done and we all feel frustrated and annoyed when that occurs. And usually we're powerless to do anything about it. But the Bible tells us that God will intervene and that there will be a judgment when all things, all, all the wrongs will be put right. And God the Father has delegated the final judgment to Jesus. And because he is righteous and just, his judgment will be just and right. The fact of this judgment, I think, should be a deterrent against sin. But I don't think that's the primary reason for God's judgment. Rather, God's righteousness demands that he must punish sin. And in the long term, his righteousness requires that sin be dealt with. And his justice means that he must judge the offenders. And outside of Christ, that means all of us. But praise God for Jesus, because he's enabled us to see God's righteousness as believers without his judgment. And we see something of God's righteousness and justice in Psalm 97, verses 5 and 6. The mountains melt like wax in the presence of the Lord. There's a sort of judgment flavor to that. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. And that suggests that God's righteousness is capable of being seen by all, yet so many ignore it or reject it. God stated to Adam at the beginning of time that if Adam disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit, then he would die because that was God's righteous judgment on sin. And we've all become infected by the sin nature that ensued from Adam's sin. And God's justice demands the death of the sinner. And even at the first sin, the Lord made skins as a covering for Adam and Eve. And that means the Lord must have killed an animal, showing the principle of an innocent life taking the place of the guilty sinner. Death still had to occur but the sin could be transferred to the innocent sacrifice so that atoning blood was shed. And we see that theme developed throughout the, New the Old Testament. And of course, uh, sorry, did I say New Testament? The Old Testament. Uh, but it pointed to the coming greater sacrifice of Jesus. And Paul described Jesus in Romans 3, verse 21. He said, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's quite a lot to take in in that passage, so read it again later. But note how the words righteousness and just or justice permeate those verses. God cannot look, overlook sin, but in his love and his compassion and his mercy, he sent his son, Jesus, 
to live a sinless life and then to die for us so that God's righteousness and justice are satisfied. And the glorious outcome of that is that those who believe that what Jesus did on the cross is effective for them uh, in averting God's righteous judgment, they, they are the ones who are forgiven and who go free. Only Jesus could satisfy the righteous justice of God. No one else is sinless. No one else is free of the inherent sin nature that we all inherit. And if Jesus hadn't come to pay the penalty for our sins, God could not be shown to be righteous and forgive us. A God who doesn't punish sin cannot be righteous. But our God's character is satisfied because Jesus took our sins on the cross and paid the penalty for our eternal salvation. Excuse me, ma'am. Because of Jesus, God's righteousness and justice are satisfied. So therefore, we as believers have an eternal future that started now when we will be forever with the Lord. But for the unbeliever, the future is awfully serious. There is no other name under heaven given among, given among men by which we must be saved. That's Acts 4 verse 12. If people will not accept the only escape plan that God has given to mankind, then the justice of God requires that the judgment of God must still fall on them. Nothing and no one who is unclean in any way can come into God's presence, which is why the righteousness of Christ that we receive as believers is so wonderful. Jesus gives us access to God, but outside of Christ it's just simply not possible. God's righteousness and his justice do indeed mean that the unbelievers through the ages must face God's wrath and judgment, but it will be entirely just and right. And no sinner who comes before the great white throne will be able to say that Jesus got it wrong or that their eternal judgment is in any way unjust. Every knee will bow before him, even the rebellious unbelievers who shake their fists at him now. It will be an awful fate for them, but it will be entirely right and just. After all, it's entirely right that nothing unclean should be able to enter the new heavens and the new earth that will be our, our abode for eternity with God. And perhaps this is a good place to consider what might seem to be a somewhat opposite attribute of God, and that's his wrath. But I think it's actually closely linked to his righteousness and his justice because God must deal with sin and he must deal with anything unclean. Because God is so burningly righteous, he is angered by sin because he hates it passionately. But before we go any further, we must pause and state that God's anger or his wrath is not like ours. It's righteous and pure. God never suffers from a bad temper. God never flies off the handle. God is never grumpy because he has a bad day, but his wrath is pure and righteous. It's righteous anger against all that is wrong and evil. He made this world beautiful and unspoiled, but sin has spoiled it. When God hates sin, 
it's not the uncontrolled hatred that burns in us that we, that we so, so often feel. God's anger hasn't been simmering away for eternity past as God is waiting for his opportunity to pounce on us so that we might swat a fly. God's hatred of sin is measured. It's intense, but it's pure and it's controlled. It cannot, it, God's wrath cannot spoil the beauty of his character. But it does mean that sin must be dealt with. And because God is also patient, he has delayed his wrath because he wants more people to be saved. And that's in 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There are many references to God's wrath in the Bible. We see one in Exodus 32, verses 9 and 10, which was at the golden calf incident when uh, Israel turned away from worshipping God and worshipped the calf. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and indeed it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. And on that occasion, Moses interceded for the people, and God didn't dis destroy them. Then in Romans 8, verse, 18, verse 18, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And when Jesus was on earth, he showed righteous anger when he cleansed the temple from those who perverted the use of the temple, and the profiteering from the people who came to bring their sacrifices to God. And because God is totally pure and righteous, he must be angry against sin and against anything that is displeasing to his holy nature. It's impossible for a morally perfect being like God to ignore sin or to be unmoved by it. We become angry at wrongdoing. We usually see it in others rather than ourselves, but we do it as well. But a perfect God must be angry at sin because he is righteous. If he ignored it, then he would undermine the perfection of his character and his purity. We all love John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's so rich and gracious. But just 20 verses later, we see the crucial need of God's gift of eternal life. Uh, in verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's, it's already there until the grace of God's salvation comes to us. God's wrath burns against sin, and being sinners by nature, and by committing sin, we all deserve God's wrath. But in God's mercy, he sent Jesus to take our place. And the full brunt of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus as he died on the cross for us instead of us. Can you imagine the spiritual pressure on Jesus when the full brunt of God's wrath was poured on him? No wonder he was in such anguish the night before as he spent time with God. 
and the gospel teaches that only those who believe in Jesus as the Son of God will avert God's wrath. God's done everything needed for people to avoid his wrath. God's purity and his holiness demand a punishment for sin. But his wrath, as with his other attributes, is infinite. That makes the eternal judgment that faces every unbeliever all the more awful. But God's wrath is not vindictive. It's entirely right and just and pure. None of us deserves the rewards that God gives us as believers, but we all deserve the judgment that is due to sinners. And it's truly by God's grace that by faith in the work of Jesus, we avoid his wrath. We see these three attributes of God that we've looked at today in Psalm 103 and verses 6 to 9. The Lord executes righteousness and judgment for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. God's patience means that he's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Hallelujah. But note that he will not keep his anger forever. The time is coming when it will be discharged because his righteous justice will have been enacted on all unbelievers so that it will no longer need to be exercised. God's heart is for salvation and forgiveness. Uh, Ezekiel 33 Verse 11, say to them, as long as I live, says the Lord, or as long as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God's heart, as I said, is for salvation and for forgiveness. But if his offer of salvation is rejected, then his righteousness requires that he must judge, and the penalty is death. God's heart is to lead people to repentance, and his outpoured wrath in judgment is delayed to give time for that. Romans 2, verses 3 to 9. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing these such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself, for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek, seek for glory, honour, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. And the people referred to at the end there are sinners who will face God's wrath when the time for judgment comes. God must punish sin primarily to maintain his judgment, his righteousness, and his justice. It may serve to deter others from sin, or indeed some in some cases, to reform some who are sinners. 
but it's the satisfaction of God's holy character that is paramount. But having said that, as with all the attributes of God, his wrath is something that we should praise God for, even though to us wrath seems to be a negative concept. On the face of it, God's wrath is something that would, would cause fear. But we should also ask ourselves what God would be like if he did not hate sin and have wrath against it. If that were the case, he would be a God who was either not troubled by sin or that he delighted in it. And that concept is almost blasphemous to our minds because God is so pure and holy. Sin is hateful to anyone who loves what is good and sin should be hated. If God had no wrath against sin, he would not be worthy of our worship. But praise God that he does feel wrath against sin. And as we live with the fullness of the Holy Spirit working in us, hopefully to make us holy, we should feel a similar hatred of sin. But it's important also to emphasize that as Christians, we don't have any need to, uh, need to have any fear of God's wrath. Jesus has taken God's wrath for us. And having considered God's, God's wrath, I think it's even more staggering to realize that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. What amazing love and humility. What an amazing saviour. But for the unbeliever, God's wrath is a terrible thing. It's completely deserved because of sin. But the tragedy is that through what Jesus did on the cross, no one need face God's wrath. But sadly, so many refuse the salvation offered. So we should be, I think, grateful for God's patience that, that his wrath is delayed giving more time for people to repent. But we should also be thankful that God will deal with sin very decisively. He will punish all wrongdoing and evil for his glory. And the time is coming when his glory will shine with all righteousness and justice, and his wrath will have achieved its purposes. And when we eventually live in a sinless eternity, there will be no need for God to exercise his wrath. He won't have lost it, but he won't need to exercise it anymore. And what a wonderful situation that will be. But as believers, we have the most wonderful future for eternity because it will be spent with God. And he's wonderful. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these glorious attributes of, of your character. The fact that you are righteous, that you are just, and also for your wrath, that you will deal with the things that are wrong. You will put right the injustices of the world. But Lord, thank you that it's all measured with your, your righteousness. But Lord, you will do that which is absolutely right. There will be no one who can point a finger and say you've got it wrong, Lord because you never do get it wrong. You never have, you never will. Lord, would you fill our hearts with awe afresh, melt them with love for you, and maybe love you more. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.